0: wandering around. Hey, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Yeah, all right. We're going to uh, jump in today's uh, sermon. I missed that part where it's hard to get everyone back in after meet and greet, so thank you for that reminder and the beautiful moments captured in that. Um, it's so good to have everyone again today. My name is Eric Thien. Um, the one thing I wanted to mention to you uh, Is that the Marion County Public Health Department is recommending individuals wear masks in public indoor spaces, regardless of their vaccination status. This is probably not news to you, but we just want to make sure um, that if you felt like you wanted to to wear a mask, feel free to do that um, uh, under that recommendation, um, not as a... uh, Uh, not as a have to, but just if you feel like that's something that you would like to do, feel free to do it. And then, of course, all of our children's ministry people will be wearing masks um, since the children can't be vaccinated. So, um, all right. Well, today is the last, it's the end of our Perspective Shift series. Um, and uh, uh, we 're going to kick off a new one next week, but essentially the whole idea of this series that we were trying to create was to take something that was familiar to us, which is our, uh, our three pillars of engagement here that we call devotion, community, and mission. Those are kind of the DNA, the boiled down components of what it means to be a disciple, what it means for our church, and we 're always kind of revolving things around those three ideas and what we did is we invited some guest speakers to come in and give their opinions because we teach on this we kind of have some, some basic things that we understand through it, but we wanted to see, you know, God, is there any holes, is there anything that somebody from a different perspective can give us in that? And so over the last couple months, that's what we've been doing, and today is the last week, um, and I, I, I did want to mention this, the reason um, that Pastor Darrow, I, I mentioned last week that Pastor Darrow from El Shaddai, the uh, Indonesian church that meets um, right after our service, an Indonesian church comes in, and they have their own service. Um, I had asked him to come and to give one of the sermons for Perspective Shift, because I thought it would be awesome. We already partnered with them in some other areas. Um, And the reason he couldn't come was actually a good reason. They they had celebrated 20 years of their church being in existence. And so I just thought it was cool to have that um, – I know that we are a part of their story and their time here uh, as they have been meeting here and there. I wasn't able to come to their celebration. I was trying to come to it, and um, I didn't hear about it until the last minute. But just a cool thing to know that um, we've gotten to be a part of the story of El Shaddai as they have um, been here in the States and uh, to help them along their journey. Um, so today is the last one, and I'm going to talk about mission. And what I want to do today is pretty basic in terms of uh, uh, giving you a strategy for evangelism, for mission in your household context, in your neighborhood context, in your uh, dorm context, in your apartment context, wherever that is. And the thing about what today is, is that it's a strategy that overseas missionaries use pretty consistently. It's, it's a fairly well-known thing that we use and, and equip and, and send people overseas to use, but we don't often use Use it in our own backyard. I know this as the Luke 10 principle. Um, And so if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke 10, we're going to jump into that in just a second. The first time I heard about this, though, was not from somebody going overseas or from somebody who had been overseas. It was a guy, uh, it was around, I think, 2009, a guy who helps to equip and to um, catalyze house church movements here in the United States. And he was challenging us to use Luke 10 as a format, as a strategy for how Jesus decided to make disciples, how he would catalyze um, bringing people into the kingdom in an of his uh, own right. And so he said, if Jesus is doing it here and he's teaching other people to do it, we should take a look at that and learn from ourselves. And this is the story that he opened up with that caught my attention. Um, and uh, I've heard a, a, a it um, from a couple of different um, angles. It's in a book too. Uh, but this guy who happened to be doing, it's like this little mini conference at a small church in Atlanta. Um, and he said that as he was driving back and forth, Forth from work, he caught this little tug that he felt was from the Holy Spirit. And he looked over and saw this small trailer park off the freeway, nowhere near where he typically would go, closer to his job than to his actual home. And he said, Ah, that's interesting that I noticed that. He began to pray for this little place. He found out that the name of it was Crystal Lake Communities. And eventually he decided that he thought God was telling him to begin being more invested, to pray more directly. So he decided to exit near that, um, that uh, intersection, go into this community, and then he just started to casually walk around the streets and pray for whatever he saw. He was prayer walking um, in and throughout this small community called Crystal Lake. Now... At one point, after a few um, weeks of doing this, he saw a lady who is urgently pulling all of her clothes off of a lawn and putting it into a uh, trash bag. When he went up to find out what was going on, he asked her, He said, Hey, what, what happened? She said, Well, I, I just, um, I was evicted a few moments ago. I didn't have anywhere to go. So when I came home, the, the landlord had just pulled all of my stuff out uh, and changed the door lock. So I wasn't able to um, go in. And he said, Well, let me help you. He starts to help her get her stuff off the lawn. He contacts his church, and they decide that they are going to um, help her get back up on her feet. And after about a month, they were able to do it. In the same community, they bought, uh, or uh, they, they got her hooked up with a trailer. I don't think they bought or purchased the trailer, but they just got this trailer for her. And as this process was happening, naturally, she was like, well, hey, tell me why you were here that day. You don't even live here. And he said, well, I was prayer walking throughout this community. I've been doing it. He's like, oh, yeah, we've actually seen you, and we have uh, we were wondering who the, the creepy guy was just wandering around in our neighborhood. We haven't been talking about you, uh, but I guess you're not so creepy. Thank you so much for your help in getting this situation figured out. But then she's like, well, can, can I come to one of your Bible studies? And he said, actually, would you mind if we started a Bible study in your new house? And she said, I mean, I guess, like, I, I don't know, you know, necessarily what, uh, what, we, what we're going to do or, or if I can accommodate something like that. So he starts to say, can you invite some neighbors? So she invites a couple of neighbors, um, and on the very first one, they're sitting in their in lawn chairs um, out front, and uh, trailer parks are, the, like, the housing is close together, if you're not familiar. And so um, as he was talking to her, one of the people she invited came out, and she said, so you're the one. And he's like, I, you know, excuse me, what are you talking about? said, you're the one. I've been asking for God to send somebody to our trailer park to help me proclaim the gospel in this community, and you're the one. God sent you, and he's like, "Why? Well, I, I, I don't know if it's exactly the match that you were looking for, but I did feel that God told me to come here, and she invited some more people. Eventually, there was this guy who was a known drug dealer who decided to come, and if you didn't know this, uh, drug dealers have a lot of influence, not necessarily for good, Um, but they still have influence, and God decided to use that. And he starts telling other people about this because something that they had said in the Bible study caught his attention. After a couple of weeks, after I would would say it was a couple of months probably when when he was telling this story um, because it was still happening when, when I heard it the first time. There was about 50 or 60 people, and I remember I I wrote this down because I want to know exactly how this went down. They started having a potluck meal and a Bible study every single Wednesday, and the guy who was a drug dealer kind of laughed looking around, and he said, you know, because they called this guy the pastor. He wasn't a pastor, but they called him that because he was the one who kind of brought the gospel to him. He said, hey, you know, pastor, if we pass the plate, this could actually be a church. And the guy leaned over to him. He said, we don't have to pass the plate. This already is a church. And that story stuck with me. It was something that was such a powerful um, reminder to me that everything that I need, everything that you need, everything that we need to start a church is completely resourced inside of you through the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that, though? Do you believe that? This wasn't a one-off incident. He wasn't an especially gifted person. He just took this whisper from the Holy Spirit seriously. And he decided to pull off on on uh, an exit that wasn't his and to walk into this neighborhood and just begin praying and eventually a church erupted. And I think every single person in this room has the ability, every believer has the ability to do this, to create, to start, to catalyze a church. And those seeds of that DNA are inside of you as we open john uh, uh, sorry luke 2 uh, sorry luke 10 i don't know why i keep messing that up luke 10 um, verses 1 uh, and 2 i wanted you to notice these these very first um, these very first words it says after this so you can go ahead and put the verses they're probably up there the whole time huh i just didn't see them I want you to, uh, to see those first two words after this, because the question that you need to ask yourself is, after what, right? Um, what is this referring to? And it's very connected to verse 9. And before we get deep into this section, I just want to give you a quick uh, where this is coming out of. In chapter 9, Jesus is challenging a bunch of people who are calling themselves followers of him to, to understand that there is going to be a cost to this discipleship, all right? that this is going to to require a bit of sacrifice from you to follow him. He tells them that you will be homeless in one of those descriptions, that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then this person comes to him and says, Hey, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. And he says, Let the dead bury their dead. And another person says, Yeah, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And he says to him that looking back is not a good quality for somebody who follows the kingdom of heaven and tells them, just follow me. Now, I think the reason I wanted to bring this up is I think it's important to know that what we're about to see erupted out of that moment a call to a kind of followership, a type of obedience that we rarely engage in. And I think every single one of us has our version of a, yeah, but first, let me do this. Or, God, can I, can I first do this? Or can I have this kind of way of life? Or get this thing done? Have some, some established parts of my life that I've wanted to do. And whether it's money, greed, sex, power, you know, kind of the big ones that kind of pull our attention. We are always coveting other things before Jesus. Often it's just our time and where we put it, right? And joining a church today looks more like trying to figure out the best amenities that each church can offer you than it does being challenged to say this is not going to be easy. You could even be homeless. And Jesus is telling them that you will have to give up everything in order to follow me. And it's after this that these next words are said. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and a place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever you get, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And when you enter a town that you are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Okay, so there's a lot to break down here, and I'm going to kind of backtrack from the beginning forward, and I want you to to see three main things. In the midst of all we could talk about, there's three main things that I want to point out to you specifically inside of this, and at the end of today, I want to issue a challenge to us as a church as we move into this next series um, called Wildfire. And the first thing is this, that God sends his people. Now, this shouldn't be new to you if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, but what I want you to see is that in this, he sends 72 others, and he's adding others as as opposed to who. And at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sent the 12, and they were sent to cast out demons, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, to heal people, and then he, in this moment, increases the amount of people he is sending to 72. And I think it's important for us to see it wasn't just the 12 elite people that were supposed to carry this gospel. He then takes some other followers. He broadens that group and says, the 72, I want you to go as well. And so follow the trajectory. First, he sends 12. Then in a similar way, he sends out 72. And I'll tell you why similar in just a few minutes. But then we see in Matthew 28 that there is a great sending that takes place on behalf of us, of you and I, that we are followers of Jesus today because those first generations of followers of Jesus took it seriously. And so now he says, take the kingdom of heaven to all nations, and the great commission then applies to us. And so we see it broadening even further to include all followers of Jesus. They didn't go alone. They went in pairs. That's always a good principle, right? You can encourage each other be prepared together, utilize and lean on each other's giftings in there. But catch this, the presence of these people was necessary, that they would go into these towns, find pockets of people who would pay attention, and through their presence, they would then proclaim the kingdom of God, the one who sent them. So there's, again, more that we could go into, but what I want you to say, and here is this this principle that I really want you to take hold of, um... I want you to see that Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful. Can you say plentiful with me? The harvest is what? Plentiful. But the workers are few. This harvest idea is incredibly important because I think our actions will usually put us in a situation where we do the opposite of that. We tend to operate as if the harvest is few and the labors are plentiful, right? And we will operate in a way that causes us to say, you know what, the urgency is not really there. Maybe someone else will tell this person about God. Maybe uh, they they don't really probably want to hear this from me, and so they maybe will tell me no anyways. Maybe they won't receive that conversation about Jesus very well. And we fall into this fear that it's going to be too awkward or that they might just not agree with us or say yes to us talking to them about it. And I want you to hear this idea. When we succumb to that fear... We actually, and, and, and other spiritual conversations that might come our way, we're actually guilty of saying no on behalf of somebody else to Jesus. We don't even give them a chance to say yes. We've told them no by not even engaging them in the first place. But we see that this harvest is plentiful, right? And so there should be like some ease to this. There should be some level, uh, how many people in here have some agrarian background? Anyone? Now, let me say this. If you live in the Midwest, you have an agrarian background, all right? Just being here, I didn't know what a was it bush hogging? Someone told me what a bush hog was the other day. I don't know why you all know that. That's a weird thing to know, but I learned it. It's because you live in Indiana, right? And now I'm catching on to some of these things. But you drive casually through cornfields. You drive casually past farms, and maybe some of you have been a part of a harvest season in and of uh, yourselves, And what I want us to see is that this harvest is plentiful. People want to know about Jesus maybe more than we might realize. Jesus tells us that. They might even be waiting or even praying for. There might be someone like the story I told earlier where somebody is asking somebody to come in and help them proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And in this agrarian culture, he uses this metaphor very intentionally so that we would understand that when it's time to pick a harvest, do you sleep on that? We all know the answer to that, right? No if you wait on it, it goes bad. It spoils, right? And I've been around enough farm um, kind of folks to know that there's this point sometimes when a harvest is like, it's immediate, it's urgent, and it needs to happen right now. And I knew people that would fly back home to the Midwest and they would join up and, and, and participate in harvest and literally work day and night for like six days straight and make almost a year's wage just in that, that little bit of time. Let me say a college student's year's wage uh, again. But, but you see, the, the, the urgency is that we need to get everyone back home. I need to get all of the people. This is a, a, a moment where everyone, all hands on deck, let's get this done. And we only have about a week to get as much of it as we can before things start to go overripe or things don't quite work out the way that they are supposed to. So they worked day and night. They went back. And Jesus is telling us that the harvest, that the, the ability to tell people about Jesus is likened to this harvest that there's an urgency to it, and that he tells us people may be more ready to be picked, to be harvested, all right, than we might realize. I think that that's true. I'm guilty of this. I don't have the benefit of when people say, hey, what's your name? I'm Eric. What do you do? Then I have to out myself, right? I don't get to hide. I just, I'm a pastor. I work for a church. But now I just kind of engage it like, uh, in, in a humorous way. Like, can we still be friends? Are we like, cool, now that you know that I'm a pastor? And people will like clean up their language and stuff like that around me all the time. But, but, what, but what I think is, is interesting is that I do this too, right? Like I, I am tempted to kind of uh, be ashamed, for lack of a better term, of the gospel all the time. But when I take that risk... I shouldn't be. He said the harvest is ripe, but I am surprised when people are like, yeah, can you tell me more? I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't really prepared to have this conversation. You actually want to know about Jesus. And just in the last two weeks, um, I've been prayer walking Castleton Lakes. It's an apartment complex at 71st and Shadeland. I kind of drove through it for, uh, you know, a couple years ago um, as I first got here on a regular basis. But um, they've had a, a couple of tragedies take place inside of that area. And so I've been prayer walking and meeting people in there. And one of the first things is like, hey, what are you, what, you don't live here. What are you doing around here? And I said, well, I'm a pastor down the street. Street, um, immediately this person started giving me a prayer list. Michael, he was fishing in the lake, and he immediately had no problem with the fact that I was a pastor, and immediately he said, hey, can you pray for prosperity? People struggle paying their rent sometimes. Can you pray that they would do this? And it, It's an interesting conversation. I went across the street um, where one of, another one of those tragedies took place inside of the um, at a restaurant across the street. Um, and the, the same thing happened. What do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. And she uh, and I said, uh, same joke, can we, can we still be friends? And the waitress, um, in that situation, um, she looks at me and she's like, oh no, I go to church too. Um, well, I haven't been in years, so maybe God sent you to me <laughs> to talk me back into going to church. I'm like, well, I'm not, I didn't come here to talk you into church. But um, you know, as we were having this conversation, there was someone else with me, and um, she's opening this this door that uh, I you know I started asking her about her church that she got went to, and she eventually then comes to me and says, "Hey, where is your church? What time does it meet?" She invited herself, and I I don't know if Angie's here. I, I, if she's here, she could stand up and tell me. I don't think she's ever come, but the interesting thing is that God sent a part of our church to her already, and so I was in her midst in this moment another person even more recently a guy named chris um at Ale Emporium, I was having lunch with somebody here in the congregation, and he interrupted because he disagreed with a theological opinion that we had um, in this situation, and as we were talking, he out of nowhere decides to throw in his opinion. He's like, well, I think the cross had this, and there's more than just the cross, and he's adding to it. The resurrection's important too, and he just jumped into our conversation. We invited him too. I, I don't know if he'll ever show up, but my point is this. In every one of those moments, I would not have thought people would be hungry or wanting to be a part of or even listen to a pastor talk about the gospel or the Bible in general. And in the last two weeks, three situations, people wanted to hear it. And I have to remind myself over and over, the harvest is plenty. The harvest is plenty. Plenty. One more thing involving the harvest. Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. That's a prayer, right? Ask the Lord, so we're talking to God, to send out workers into the harvest field. And we can actually be the answer to that prayer because we could be those workers as well. But one of the things I really want us to grasp inside of this idea of harvest is that prayer is important when you interact with people, uh, with the gospel, with, with, the, with the scriptures, with Jesus, you see this idea, um, if you recall the, the story of Cornelius and Peter, um, essentially what happened is God gave them each a vision about each other. They didn't know each other before that. They give, they're, they're in their moments of interactive prayer with God. He is speaking with them, and they, without knowing each other, are led to interact and to engage, and as a result, the gospel opens up into the Gentile world in a completely new way. In the context of mission, prayer is incredibly important. Doors can be opened without us, even being, uh, without us even having been made aware of it. And it took that moment of boldness, that step of faith to say, okay, I'm going I'm to act on this thing that I think I'm hearing, that I think the Holy Spirit might be doing. And so, what ends up happening is this immediate, this beautiful Holy Spirit interaction. In fact, most great revivals started because of a prayer movement. Um, one famous example is the moravian church in the 1700s Uh, a bunch of refugees who were fleeing there was a a, a, an incredibly bloody um, war between protestant and catholicism at the time and and a bunch of refugees flee into a forest and make their way to an open land that is owned by a guy named count zinzendorf all right that's the coolest name ever by the way count zinzendorf decides to allow them to make a camp which turns into a village. They have some rivalries in the midst of them. They all decide to come together in unity and make what they called, uh, I think it was like the brotherly agreement or something like that. After this agreement's made, they make peace kind of within themselves, and God starts to call them into prayer, and they decide that they're going to pray every hour. A different person is going to own an hour for 24 hours, and then it catches on, and they're able to do it a week. This whole thing continues on for the next 100 years. 24 hours, seven days a week somebody in their community is praying and in that God starts to tell them I need you to be on mission. And so they start sending small groups of people into villages, into towns, and into cities essentially becoming some of the first missionaries in, in, in that, um, uh, uh, that group of, of Christians. And, and what they do is they they, they go and plant house churches in these cities, and they completely change. They start praying for people. They see miracles take place inside of this. But this idea of prayer just fueling mission, giving us insight as to how we should be interacting, who we should be talking to, is so interconnected, and I think often we miss that. Um, Here is one of the things that we were challenged to do um, when I was with this, uh, this small group of people at this conference. Um, can everyone grab their phones right now? I know I'm asking you to move, do something. Grab your phone, all right? Um, I want you to set a timer for me, and it's going to be set for 10.02, and what they did is they challenged us. This is Luke 10.02. If God tells us to pray for the workers uh, to be sent into the harvest field, then I want a reminder that we would pray. Oh, there we go. I love that one, that ring. Um, at 1002, can you set a reminder, and this is what I want you to do. You don't have, it can just be a buzz so it doesn't interrupt, but for years and years I did this. I fell out of habit, and I want to challenge our congregation. One of the, the least things we can do in terms of evangelism is to pray that God would move on our behalf. And so this is what I want you to do. Set it for 1002 because Luke 1002 tells us, pray that God would send workers into the harvest. And so the people that would run this, they, they set this, and wherever they're at, and I would be at lunch with this, um, with this particular pastor um, who challenged us, and he would stop us. Hey, the 1002, and he calls it the 10-2 virus. He, he, it just goes off, do you mind if we stop and pray? And it's very quick. He'd say, hey, uh, God, send us, send workers, send people into the harvest. And that would be the simple prayer that he would pray for us in that moment. And so if you're willing, would you begin praying at 1002 every day, That God would send workers into the harvest. Now, I'm gonna know next week whether you did it or you didn't, because at 10:02, I should see a lot of alarms going off in this. The other principle that I want you to see here, is just this common, this the, this idea that the way Jesus sends them out is very specific as well. He says, "Take nothing for your journey: no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and no th- not two tunics." Sorry, I'm reading from actually from verse uh, uh, chapter nine, where it tells the uh, the twelve. So Jesus, in a very similar way, way tells them, "Don't take a bunch of things. I want you to rely on me." And so, very specifically in the in the previous verse, it says, "Take nothing on your journey: no staff, no bag, no bread, no money." And so, what you see is inside of this, and there's some cultural things kind of going on here. Jesus is telling them not to take a bunch of things, right? But, but in this, he's saying, okay, so usually you would take extra sandals in case one broke. Don't carry extra sandals, right? Don't bring any money because I want you to rely on God's provision through the generosity and the strangers in the places that they're going to travel, Huh, that's interesting. Eat what is offered to you. So often they're engaging with other cultures. They're having to work with people that aren't uh, uh, preparing their food in kosher ways. And then they have to, even in some situations, they're, they're, uh, they're sacrificing the meat to idols. And so what they have to do in this situation is to kind of put that aside for the sake of mission. And just whatever someone puts in front of you, I want you to eat it. Don't greet anyone <clears throat> along the way. Uh, the Jewish New Testament commentary, which you hear me quote from a lot, said that the, the Yiddish word is better in translation than just talk because the word schmooze is really what they mean in this situation. Talk in a friendly way, chit-chat, engage in idle conversation and gossip. They, he's saying don't schmooze people along the way, so there's an urgency. And here's the, the big idea that I want you to kind of draw from this. Why is he telling them to do this? What's the reason? Trust. He wants them not to trust in other things. He wants them to trust fully on God's ability to provide for them. And anytime we have other things to lean on, our trust gets built up in those things, right? Whether it's our own means and resources, whether it's our extra pair of sandals that we pack away inside of our backpack, God is saying, I don't want you, Jesus is saying, don't take anything extra. I want you to be fully devoted, and fully connected to what I am doing in those moments. And so he wants them to have trust, unhindered trust in him. And so he sends them out. He says, I want you to trust me. And then finally, he says this, I want you to identify a person of peace. And this is what it says, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone promotes peace there, your peace will rest on us. There's an exchange of peace together. And very simply, a person of peace is just somebody who's open to hearing the gospel, right? And so I think Michael, in my story, when I went to Castleton, Lake, Castleton Lakes, was a person of peace. He was open to hearing, and maybe he's going to tell people, um, I haven't seen him ever again, so maybe now he's ducking me every time I come by on that prayer walk. Who knows? But there was a level of peace that was um, given, a bit of hospitality inside of that moment. Um, Neil Cole, who's a house church practitioner, says a person of peace is defined by three things. They're a person of receptivity. They're open to hearing the message. They're a peace person of relational connection to the community that you find them in, right? They have an oikos or a household or a people, pocket of people that they connect with. And then third, they're a people of reputation. They possess a reputation, whether good or good or bad. It can both be leveraged for the kingdom and for the gospel. Now, maybe you know someone that's really good at that. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, you see a demon-possessed man who then gets his life turned around and tells the Decapolis. You see a woman at the well who goes and tells everything that Jesus said to him, to, to, to her, to the people in that area. We see Cornelius and Lydia. All of these people are good examples of a person of peace um, and, and, uh, and and my my hope for us, um, I, I'm kind of trying to summarize now because I realize what time it is after our awesome day of celebrating kids. <laughs> um, that's correct. Is it 11:14 right now? Woo! This might need to be a two-parter, you all. I don't think I can summarize this. Um, here, this this is um, this is the way I want us I want us to end today. Um, this is my challenge to you. I want to ask you all to begin prayer walking your neighborhoods, prayer walking your apartment complexes, becoming a people that is out in your community. And many of you do this, you're already on walks, you're always doing these things, but I want you to add prayer to that. I want you to begin walking around and asking Jesus very specifically, God, who do you want me to talk to? Who is the person of peace that I need to be engaging with? Who is it here that is praying for somebody to talk to them about God? Who is it here that needs guidance? Who is it that needs to be served like the lady who is sitting out in the front yard with her clothes strewn about? And I want you to begin prayer walking very intentionally, asking Jesus to open up moments for you to speak about the gospel. I want you to prayer walk in ways that, that, uh, that, that maybe you'll have to even say, hey, I'm going to take my calendar. I'm going to block away an hour every single week so that it's prioritized in the way that Jesus asks us to be prioritizing him. Maybe you can do it in your going. Maybe you can do it at the soccer field if you have kids and they're in soccer. But, but what my point is I want you to begin identifying a people to be focused on praying for in some sort of scheduled way. And I think the easiest way is just to begin prayer walking wherever you're at. If you've never done it, I can give you all kinds of tips. I talk out loud. I probably look like, um, you know, like someone who's uh, lost it a little bit as I'm walking around. But But the idea that I want us to do is to engage this in a way that is very intentional. It begins to say, okay, God, where do you want a church to erupt? To expect that people, that the harvest is ripe, that people are wanting to hear more and more about it. And if they ask you to to tell them more, be willing to walk into that, to have those conversations. As you pray, listen to God and ask him, God, what might you be telling? What pictures might you be giving me? Where should I be interacting? What are the things that you want me to do? Be willing to step out of your comfort zone because God might ask you to go and to do and to be something that you weren't expecting for it to be. Pray for the good of your neighbors. Michael asked me to pray for prosperity. That didn't come from nowhere. He needs something. Create allow your prayer walks to create natural conversations. If someone starts talking to you, allow that to be okay and say, "Hey, is there anything I can pray for you for?" That's an easy way to start a spiritual conversation. Take courage. Don't be ashamed. And don't be surprised if God begins to move, even supernaturally so, inside of your midst. And I'll, I'll make this a quick one. I wanted you to hear this last um, story. Um, in our last church, uh, we asked our house church, we call them community groups, um, but I ran them very similar to the way we do house churches. We asked our house church, send us. Um, we want you to pray over us and send us like missionaries into a new um, uh, uh, neighborhood that we were moving into. And so they, they, they did that. Um, and, it, and it was like, maybe, maybe we're acting out of formality, I don't know. But it, then one night, they said, Eric and Emily, sit in the middle. We are going to pray over you, and we are going to send you. We are your sending, church. And we want you to start a new house church in this new neighborhood. And so that's exactly what happened. We started prayer walking each other's neighborhoods. And I would extend that challenge to us. If you're in a house church, prayer walk each other's neighborhoods. And then they said, we're not just going to do that. We're going to resource. It sounded like um, it would be fun to do a a movie night in your cul-de-sac. Let's help you pop popcorn for that. Let's actually uh, come over there and hang out with you. And it didn't take but a couple of weeks before three or four families started to hang out with us. And when they found I was a part of a church, they asked me to do a Bible study, because I'm a pastor, right? It didn't take long. It happened way faster than I thought it would, and it was a mini version of what we do all the time in this large-scale capacity, right? We send people overseas, and we do all those things. I want us to be sent people. I want us to go into our neighborhoods for the good of those neighborhoods, and that the gospel would be proclaimed. Proclaimed. After a couple of weeks, we're having these Bible studies, and there was a lady there who told me, I will never, I will ne- don't ask me, I will never, ever go through the doors of your church. Now, what she didn't realize is she, she didn't have to. I came to her. I was right next door, and when things fell out in her life, we were the place that she came to. She knocked on our door when she needed help with her grandson because her daughter had to, be, had to be taken away. When the, when the, when the needs arise, we were the person in her life to be able to help her. And then when the Bible study stopped for the summer, she was the one knocking on my door. Hey, when are we going to start that Bible study up again? It was, it was people who, who had walked away from the church and said, I'm, I can't get back in. I was too hurt. And they started to join us. Three or four families consistently for a couple of years, joining us because we took seriously this idea that God might want to send us to our neighborhoods. And so let me let me close up. I know again, thank you for sticking with me. I know the time we're pressing it, but um, I want us to be sent people into our neighborhoods. I think it's time for us to take that next step into that mode to be bold, to be unashamed to pray, to ask God to work supernaturally and to believe that he actually will work supernaturally. You said it at the beginning. Do you have everything that is, that is necessary to plant a church in your neighborhood? Most of you agreed yes. I believe you. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to start what we would consider a house church networking itself throughout Indianapolis. <laughs> maybe those people will come here. Maybe they won't. But people will certainly come to know Jesus because the front doors of Common Ground Northeast came to them and proclaimed the gospel. Let me pray over y'all. i invite the band to go ahead and come up as we, um, as we close up today. Uh, but I want to pray specifically these words that I just asked you to pray. Yes, Lord. Um, the harvest is ripe and the laborers are few. And so God, I pray that we would answer that prayer and become the living embodiment of those sent. God, could we be a rescue when someone needs rescue? Could we be a friend when somebody needs a friend? Could we just be a presence inside of our schools and our neighborhoods and our apartment complexes and our jobs and the places that we hang out, God, that the, that the Luke 10 principle of finding a person of peace and identifying and praying for that, of believing that people are hungry for you, God, would you put that deep inside of us with a kind of urgency that says, don't even look back. that we have given our lives wholly to you and started off of that idea and said we are going to now become the living gospel to people. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that you have given us strategies and ways um, in which we are supposed to to move God. And Lord, as um, as we leave today, Would we go knowing that we are a part of a great mission field that has been happening for centuries, that has been bolstered by the Moravian Church, that has been bolstered by whoever told us about you, Jesus, that has been uh, carried from generation to generation and now it's our turn. And so God, as we make disciples, may we not be the end of this movement, but simply passing the baton on to the next person to run. We pray for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.